Let's pray before we head into the passage today. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you that we can gather in your presence with each other and enjoy the freedom that we have to worship you and to hear your word and to grow as your disciples. And we just pray this morning that you would open our hearts uh, to follow you, to draw near to you, to have your word work in our hearts. We ask this in your name. Amen. Hey, Will, can you use a quiet voice? Okay, thanks. Love you. We're walking through the book of Daniel, which explores God's people in exile in Babylon. And the book poses the question, how do believers in God remain faithful in really difficult circumstances. And today as Christians, we could just as easily ask, what does it mean to live faithfully in a secular society, in a society that is far from God or is not interested in God? What does that mean for us? And there's several points of uh, parallel for us as we explore Daniel and think about what it means to live for God today. Last week we talked about King Nebuchadnezzar's dream which reveals that there will be various empires that are going to rise up and fall after Babylon. But God himself is going to come and establish his kingdom, and it is going to endure forever. And for Daniel... Hey, Will. Can you use quiet voice? Thanks. Love you. Mrs. Mobby's going to come sit with you. There she is. Oh, there she is. Ooh. <laughs> There's two reminders in that dream. For Daniel, it's a reminder that being in exile isn't going to last forever. The brokenness and the fear and the pain that his people are experiencing is going to come to an end because of God's faithful character. And for Nebuchadnezzar, it's this realization, as much as he is filled with his own pride and his own uh, allure to power, his kingdom is not eternal. And he has to come to grips with that. And ideally, he should respond to God's lordship over all things. And we talked about some implications of that passage for us. First, that God's word says that the evil in our day will come to an end that God is sovereign over human history. And that is incredibly encouraging for us when we look at the world around us today. And second, there's a call for us to consider how are we going to live our lives? Do we, like Nebuchadnezzar, choose to live according to the values of a sinful empire? Do we mark our lives with our own sort of greed and lusts and pride and fear or will we choose to find our identity in God's kingdom and live out his values of faithfulness and grace and love and hope? And so there's a call for us to decide which empire do we live in or are we loyal to? And the third thing we talked about was that Daniel, after this moment, is given a position of authority to seek the good of Babylon while he's there. He's called to seek the good of the nation, even though the nation does not seek God. 
And likewise, we are called to seek the good of the nation or the city that we are planted in, even if that nation or city is not what we would say Christian, so to speak. We're called still to extend the grace and the hope of Jesus in the place where we are planted. And so today we get to chapter 3, which, as I said, is the famous fiery furnace story. Nebuchadnezzar's built a golden statue and demands that everyone needs to pray and worship at it. Pray to it and worship it. And it seems that the warnings of the dream from the last chapter have gone over his head, right? If anything, he's been inspired by the dream in the wrong way because now he's created a statue that's all gold, not just the head is gold, but the whole thing's gold now. And it seems as though he's saying, no, no, my empire will endure. He's leaned into his evil tendencies, and now he's made this image of a false god to be worshipped. Uh, we actually have archaeological evidence of a Babylonian document where Nebuchadnezzar is talking about no one should harm the statue. Don't touch that thing. I made it, right? Just leave it. No one can go near that thing. And if you leave it, you will be blessed and you will succeed and on and on he goes. This thing's huge. It's about nine feet wide, about 90 feet high. It's really, really big. And its location, if you noticed in verse 1, he says, he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And if we're thinking with a, a sort of biblical imaginations, you may go, wait a minute, there is another tower, another tall thing that was constructed on a plane. What does this remind us of? It sounds a little bit like the Tower of Babel, and it's meant to. Here is people at the peak of their hubris, of their human pride and arrogance, seeking to worship or call attention to something other than God and to build a monument to that end. And so we're having a similar moment. Just as Babel was on the plain, now we have Babylon making this statue on the plain. And the king's demand poses a, a really serious problem for Daniel and, and his friends. Are they going to forsake their loyalty to God and bow to the idol to save their lives? Or will they remain faithful to God and risk certain death, right? That's basically the crux of the passage. And then to make matters worse, we didn't read all of this, but in verse 8, uh, some of the Chaldeans, some of the magicians and sorcerers, and some of the guys that aren't big fans of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego point out to the king that these guys are not going to bow down and worship, and so they get them in trouble and tell on them, and uh, the king gets mad about it. Daniel's not mentioned, and some people wonder where he is. There's a good chance that uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were governing kind of outside province stuff, and Daniel was in the main court. And it, it's, again, we're out on the plain of Dura, so it may be that he's just kind of back at the royal palace, or he's out on some other kind of government duty, right? Um, but anyway, the point is that Nebuchadnezzar's threats threaten uh, the three Jewish friends. Who will save you, says Nebuchadnezzar? Look at verse, I think it's 15, the end of 15. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace, and likely the furnace is there because they just cast the gold on the statue, right? It's probably the same furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? 
And that's the question that sort of hangs over the passage. Is a different God greater than Nebuchadnezzar and his gods? There's a question of is the, is the tower, or the tower, is the image um, of Nebuchadnezzar or of a different Babylonian god? We don't really know, but it doesn't really matter. The point is it's some sort of idolatry or false worship, right? And this is the heart of the passage. It's the call to a faithful loyalty to God even when we face really difficult circumstances, right? Will we be faithful to Jesus even when things in our life look incredibly difficult and we don't quite know what to do, or we, we do face a uh, certain death. Now, I think a lot of us don't experience that sort of martyrdom persecution uh, right now, which is wonderful, but there's many, many Christians around the world who do. Will we be faithful to God, even if it means our lives might be taken? Now, look at the response in verses 17 and 18, because this is really... Uh, it's really so great. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response to the king. Verse 16, sorry. They say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, meaning if you, if you throw us into the furnace, right, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So there's no doubt in their minds that God has the power to save them. Right? They're well aware of that. They know God is faithful and he's good. And yet the way in which God is going to work out his plan is not always clear. Right? So they say God is able to deliver us. And sometimes we see God's power displayed in dramatic and powerful ways. You might think of the Red Sea moment, right? Where God rescues his people out of Egypt in a really dramatic display of his power and his goodness, and off they escape. And yet, at other times, that same power is withheld. And God does allow his people to suffer. We may think of Job who goes through an incredible suffering. Or we may think of Paul and his thorn in the flesh. Or we may think actually of Jesus himself, who prays to the Father, let this cup pass from me. If there's another way not to endure the cross, let's do it. And this brings up a a really important biblical truth for us, and particularly if you grew up in a Pentecostal or charismatic circle, this is really important for us to realize, is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know very clearly they believe and they have faith that God can save them. But did you notice in verse 18, what do they say? But if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego acknowledge that God may not act in the way that they want him to. And they're admitting that God may not. It's not a lack of faith. It's not about them having some kind of false mindset about healing or about God's will. It's an honest biblical theology of yielding to God's sovereignty. 
God is sovereign and he is good. But that doesn't mean that he has to act the way I might expect him to. And this is key for us, that that they have a loyalty to God and a devotion to him that is unflinching in front of the fiery furnace. Their trust and their hope in God is based in his character. It's not based on assuming that he has to act to save them, that he's somehow obligated to come through for them in this way. Or to put it another way, we could say they're not so obsessed with their own health or their own well-being or their own prosperity that God has to rescue them. Rather, they're willing to be killed for their loyalty to God if it comes to it. And so perhaps I think the most striking thing about this passage, and particularly verse 18, are those three words. But if not, God can save us. But if he doesn't, they're not going to presume God's will. And again, much like Jesus in Gethsemane, there's a willingness to yield to God's sovereignty. Jesus says, but not my will. Yours be done. And that is a biblical approach to suffering and to faith, which actually stands in really in blatant contrast to some of the false teaching that you will hear today in some sort of New Age or Pentecostal circles. Um, one, of the, one of the more dangerous false teachings out there is that it's called the Word of Faith Movement. You've maybe heard of that. The Word of Faith Movement isn't a particular denomination. It's sort of a worldwide kind of Christian movement, particularly in Pentecostal circles. And it teaches that Christians can access the power of faith through their speech. And so uh, teachers in the Word of Faith movement often promote a very attractive but deceptive uh, doctrine called the prosperity gospel. And maybe you've heard of that term as well, where they misinterpret particular verses of the Bible uh, to state that God absolutely promises your perfect health and your abounding wealth as well And all you need to do is claim that promise. And so if you are poor or if you're sick, uh, you're obviously doing something wrong. You don't have enough faith. It's your fault that you're not healed, for instance. And underneath that idea is the assertion that God has to give me what I want. And I'm able to sort of speak that into being and believe it. And by our words, like God's ourselves, we can manipulate the faith force. In fact, some of the teachers in that movement refer to it as a faith force. And my words manipulate the faith force to bring into reality what I want. And it comes from a twisting of Matthew 7 and Mark 11 and Romans 4 and various other places. What it does is it removes any actual element of relationship with God. There's no relationship there. There's no acknowledging that God has a will and he will work things out for the good. There's no acknowledging of God's sovereignty. This is where you get kind of the name it and claim it saying comes from, right? You just need to claim your healing to be healed. That's not biblical, actually. Yes, we can pray for healing and we are to pray for healing. And we believe that God does heal. But it's not based on our words manipulating a faith force or speaking something into being we can pray for healing because we trust in the faithful character of god and he is the one 
who brings healing. And the Bible talks about our yielding to God's will in our praying. Like I said, Jesus himself models that for us in Gethsemane. And that position which is held by Jesus and Paul and throughout the Bible is present here in Daniel, that sometimes we bear a cross and sometimes we suffer and sometimes we're sick and we may indeed be weak and frail this side of the resurrection. But the resurrection is indeed the promise that God will bring the fullness of life and healing and well-being to his believers beyond death if they don't have that before. Because of Christ, death has lost its sting. But we may not always see that this side of Jesus' return. What we can do is trust. We can trust that God's plans are good even if I can't see that right now. And that's the stance that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have here. God can rescue us. He, he certainly can. But God doesn't have to rescue us, right? God can bring healing. He can remove us from this situation. They're not in prosperity right here, right? They're not doing so great. God's plans are good even if he doesn't rescue us and we die. We know that he's sovereign, and if he lets us go, it will be for his greater good and his greater glory, even if we can't imagine what that might look like. And I think of Job, and I've mentioned this several times when I talk about this sort of thing with healing and faith and, and whatnot with people, is Job, if you're familiar, uh, Job has everything taken from him, essentially, right? I mean, his family dies, and he loses incredible wealth, and he's in a really, really bad place. He loses his own health as well. And uh, part of this is because it's a testing that God allows to happen, right? God allows this to happen to Job. And by the end of the book, Job is willing to submit that God's ways are good and God is wise, even though Job is never told the answer for why he suffers. We get the answer as readers. We get to kind of look behind the scenes and see that. But Job in the moment is not told the reason why. And so often, when we are in that place where someone is sick or we are suffering or things are not going well, we can ask God, what, is, what are you doing in this? And sometimes we can understand it and see it, but sometimes we don't, and it's okay. And that will be revealed in the end on the other side of the resurrection, that God was faithful and he was sovereign and he was wise and he was good. And so even though we will not bow, say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if God doesn't save us, we're going to stand for what's true. And it's not based on whether or not God heals this person or not, or whether God saved us from this thing or not, or whether God rescued me out of a terrible situation or not. No, no. God is still good and faithful, even if I don't always understand exactly what he's doing. I tell you, my kids don't have a clue why I tell them to do certain things half the time, right? They don't get it. There is things that me and Sarah know that is best for them that they simply cannot comprehend, right? Any of you that have parents or have little kids, you know that. There's decisions you make that are ultimately for their good, even though they may not get that in the moment. 
And it's the same, folks, with God in our lives. Sometimes things do happen that we don't understand. But God is still good, and he will see us through. And also, this idea that um, kind of from the Word of Faith movement ignores the idea that God can actually use pain or illness for his glory in my life. And a great example of this is actually 2 Corinthians 12, which is about Paul's thorn in the flesh. And there's debate. If, you're, if, if those that are in the word faith movement have to kind of run circles around this passage to try to explain it away. Um, but there's debate about what is the thorn? Is it some kind of physical ailment? Is it some kind of spiritual ailment? And we don't really know. It's, there's a possibility lots of scholars think Paul has some sort of eye issue because of different passages uh, in his letters that he's suffering from some sort of ailment in his eye. I remember my New Testament professor believed that. He also had an eye issue, so he felt a kinship with Paul. that They had similar eye issues and, and were suffering together. But Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, upholds the same idea that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have here in Daniel. Paul says, I was given a thorn in the flesh, and it's to keep him from becoming conceited. This thing is in his life to keep him humble. And Paul even says it's some kind of, it is some kind of evil thing. It has actually some sort of demonic element to it. Whether it's physical or spiritual, we don't know. But the point is, Paul is not living in perfect prosperity and perfect health and perfect wealth. He's not, right? And we read in 2 Corinthians that Paul has prayed about it. And we know Paul has faith. It's not, a, it's not an issue of whether Paul had the right faith or not or said the right things, or had the right mindset. It's not about that. But what does God say to Paul? As Paul has prayed that God would take this thing away from him, God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The power of God is made perfect in our weaknesses. And so in God's view, Paul remaining humble, because Paul says, I was given this so I didn't become conceited. In God's view, Paul remaining humble is more important than Paul being completely healed this side of the resurrection. God can use our brokenness and indeed our illnesses to shape our character and to grow us and to sanctify us, even though that may not make a lot of sense to us this side of things. And Paul is basically being told, it's okay that you're weak. It's okay that you're not perfectly strong. Because in that place of weakness, Paul, you have to rely on my grace in your life, not on your own strength or wisdom, which is really, really tempting. It's my strength that's going to enable you to get through hard times, and I'm glorified in that. And so what's Paul's response to that? Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, well, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weakness then. I'll embrace that weakness. Right on, weakness. Because in that weakness, the power of Christ rests upon me. And so when we go through hard times or we face that fiery furnace or there is pain or sickness or brokenness, that won't leave, even though we have prayed about it and prayed about it faithfully and wholeheartedly, we can still rest 
in the biblical truth of these scriptures where like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we can realize God is still sovereign and God is still good and he's worthy of my faith and my loyalty and he will bring me through that hardship and I can rely and trust on him and actually try to learn to rejoice in those trials in my life because God is my strength and my salvation not my circumstances. Jesus is Lord, not my feelings about what's happening in my life. God is good and faithful. God can deliver us, but if not, King, we will not bow. We have faith in God, we trust him, and we will pray and seek and ask, but we will also yield right we will yield to god alone who's sovereign he can deliver us but if not he can still work this out for his glory and so the implication for us is really clear where do you feel weak today where do you feel frail and broken and burnt out and tired because being a christian is not about pretending everything's okay in your life Being a Christian is not about ignoring the difficulties you're going through. It's about acknowledging the real challenges and struggles, but recognizing that God is still faithful and Christ promises the assurance that he is with us always, even to the end of the age, and it will be well in the end. In response to that, of course, Babylon rages and Nebuchadnezzar tosses them in the furnace. In verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? And they say, yes, O king. He answers, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And there's a question here, is this a Christophany, which is a physical appearance of Jesus before his incarnation? Or is it an angel of some kind? We don't know exactly. But either way, what we do know is really clear that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are joined by a fourth individual in the flames. And it's a physical demonstration of God's presence with his believers. It's actually a fulfillment of Isaiah 43, 2, which says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. And that promise that the Lord is present with us in the trial still holds true today. Even if God doesn't rescue us the way we might like, he's provided a way out of that which would completely overwhelm us, which is the way of salvation in life through Jesus, his son. That the greatest monster we could face is our own sin and the power of death. And God has won the victory over those things. And so when we come to him and we repent of our sins and we confess him as Lord of our lives, even if we face persecution and sickness and death, And knowing that someday we will die, 
Because of Jesus, we know we will be resurrected, healed, and whole and alive when Christ comes again in glory. We may not be immediately rescued or healed or especially prosperous, but in Christ we know and have the assurance that even if we pass through death, we will know life again at such a time as he renews us all, when he promises to wipe every tear from our eyes and to make all things new. And so that question that Nebuchadnezzar poses, who's the God that will deliver you out of my hands, has been graphically answered. It's the true and living God. He alone is faithful and trustworthy, and he alone can save and provide. Whether he does exactly what we hope in the moment, or whether we put our assurance knowing that he will save us even beyond death through the resurrection. He's good, and he's faithful. And so to wrap this up, just three quick implications for us. The first one I just want to ask again, is there, is there an area in your life where you need to yield, like Paul and like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, yield to God and receive his grace and his strength even as you are feeling particularly weak and frail? Where is that place in your life where you need to say, okay, Lord, I need to just yield to you. I'm going to continue to pray about this area, and I trust in you, and I, I'm going to continue to pursue you. But, Lord, I realize uh, you're sovereign and you're good. and I'm just going to yield to you in this area. Second, for some of you, you may be in a position today where you are being tempted to bow to some sort of idol in your own life. You maybe are being faced with the the, the real temptation to make some other thing in your life uh, the Lord of your life, some other desire or person? And is there something that everyone around you is doing, like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Incredible peer pressure, right? Everyone else is doing it. I guess we'll just go along with it, right? Is there something in your life that you are pressured to conform to? And may I just remind you and assure you that you can indeed stand for God's righteousness and mercy and grace. And you may not be in a situation where your life depends on it. At least I hope not. But there are various other areas where we are also called to stand. We're called to stand for truth against the lies of the enemy and the world. We're called to stand for God's righteousness and his mercy. What does Micah 6, 8 tell us? says he has told you O man what is good what does the lord require of you to do justice to love kindness to walk humbly with your god you stand for those things for justice and for kindness with a humble heart isaiah 1 16 to 18 calls us to take a stand against our sin wash yourselves make yourselves clean remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. Learn to do good. And here's the things that we can take a stand for in our day. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So may we find rest and assurance even in our own weakness and frailty. May we know the power and the goodness of God 
even in trials in our lives. And may we stand and do that which is close to God's heart, to walk humbly before him, to stand for justice and mercy, to cease from evil, and to do good. Amen. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we thank you that in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we have a wonderful example of standing firm for you in a world that rages with evil and idolatry. And Lord, much of our world today is so similar, where there's so much that would pull us away from a wholehearted devotion to you. And so I just pray this morning, Lord, that you would uh, give us wise hearts, Lord, wisdom in our hearts to discern uh, the temptations around us so we can stand firmly for you. Lord, I thank you that uh, we can trust in your goodness and your grace, but we also can yield to you, Lord, that sometimes in life you allow things to happen that don't always make sense. Uh, but God, you're still good. And so we, like Job, can recognize you're still wise and you're still sovereign, even in the brokenness of my life. Jesus, we thank you that there is healing and hope in you, and we can come to you and pray, Lord, that you would set things right. And that so often, Lord, you do. We see your kingdom come already here and now. And yet, Lord, we also recognize that your kingdom is not yet here in its fullness, and, and we wait with anticipation for your return when you will make all things new and wipe the tears from our eyes and set things right. Lord, we thank you for the hope of the resurrection so that even when our loved ones pass away or we ourselves eventually pass away, that, Lord, we, we know and trust that you've got us. We think even just those last few months of loved ones here in our church who have passed away, Lord, and we thank you that they are in your presence and that they are now whole and healthy and healed. And that promise of life and restoration has come true for them. And that, Lord, we thank you that at the resurrection, we will see them again in new resurrected bodies. Lord, that's our hope, and that's what you've shown us through your resurrection, Jesus. And so, Father, we rest in you, and we pray that as we think on this passage, you would give us wisdom for navigating the issues we face in life. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Lord, we pray that you would help us individually and us as a church to stand for you and your righteousness and your justice and help us to do that with humble hearts not with arrogant hearts like nebuchadnezzar but humble hearts because of you and your faithfulness and lord with the words you taught us we pray together our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? I'd love to send you off with the benediction before we go. If you'd like prayer, we'd love to pray for you before you head out. Don't leave this place if you need prayer and encouragement. And uh, do take a look at your bulletin again and mark some of those things coming up. We'd love to have you out. Receive this benediction. Children of God who are loved 
and forgiven through our Lord Jesus Christ. May you know the goodness and the assurance that we find in God's sovereignty over the brokenness in life. May you rest in the grace and the peace of Jesus who walks with us through the trials in our lives. And may you stand for righteousness and for truth and for God's love in a world that is still filled with idolatry and with brokenness. And may you rest in the assurance that God has got us, that he loves us, and that he will make all things new. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. Amen. We do love you. Great to see you. Have a wonderful week. Bless you. We'll see you next Sunday.